Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Age of Radio. Hello there, folks, and thank you for listening to the show. I'm Joanna. I'm Nate, and we are Stranger Than. We have some strange stories for you today. Um, some kind of uplifting. Others, not so much. I'll be talking about organized crime in the 60s and 70s in Japan, uh, specifically done by women. I'll also be talking about a lost child in Australia, and I'll be reading an article about some crazy-ass animal that they found that it's extinct now, but it, in the past it wasn't. In like 43 million years ago, it wasn't. So uh, it's an interesting story there. Joanna's got for us a very strange and disturbing story. Yes. So, uh, you know, be ready for that. Yeah. I think that uh, I'll start out today and uh, with the Sukaban. In America, we call organized crime the mob. In Japan, they call it Yakuza. The Yakuza are similar to, like, the, the mobs that we see here. You know, they're dressed in their fancy suits. But the Yakuza are generally heavily tattooed and generally have bald heads. Uh, they're some pretty bad dudes. The Yakuza started in the 1600s. They are believed to have evolved from gangs of samurai. They peaked in the 1960s, with an estimated number of members at over 200,000. Now, only men were allowed to be in the Yakuza, which didn't sit well with the criminally-minded women in the 60s and the 70s. Well, yeah, equal rights, motherfucker. That's right. I mean, if these guys are going to come be doing organized crime, why not let the women do organized crime? So that's where we have the Sukaban, or girl boss girl gang kind of translation. They were all girl gangs. They popped up in the late 60s and lasted until the 70s, mid to late 70s. They weren't wearing suits. They were wearing these long pleated skirts, sort of to rebel against the short skirts that were the style of the swing in 60s. You know, they were sort of against the patriarchy, against the sexualization, so they wore these long skirts. They would also wear these sailor shirts with the untied neckties. You know, uh, like, have you ever seen Sailor Moon? I have not. Or, or have you seen Inuyasha? Mm-mm. Have you seen Kill Bill? I have seen Kill Bill. In fact, when you first said about this, like, you know, girl gang, I was, like, thinking, like, oh, is this, like, Oren Ichi? Like, no. More no. like, um... Uh, the girl, she's in the crazy 88. She's younger. She's got the ball with the chain at the end, of, or the chain with the ball at the end of it. Her name is like Gogo mm. or something. Oh, yeah, okay. So she's dressed about. in a short skirt, and she's got the sailor shirt on, and then she's got like a jacket over it. 
-hmm. That's a pretty good representation, except for she's wearing a short skirt as opposed to a longer skirt. In Sailor Moon, uh, they wear it before they get all magical and turn into their sailor selves. And in Inuyasha, the character Kagome, is she runs around wearing that sort of suit as well. And then it's got a little necktie that they just they wear untied. Sometimes they would cut out the midriff just to sort of, I don't know, just for the hell of it, just for style. Uh, they would wear Converse as well. Now, sometimes they would embroider the shirt or the, or the skirts with like patches or just like regular embroidery or whatever. And it's sort of like, you know, punks and metalheads do now with their jackets, with their uh, leather yeah. ja or their uh, denim jackets. Another reason they wore these long skirts is because they were a very convenient place to hide weapons. So they would carry things like chains and, you know, like thick chains to hit people with, or sometimes bamboo swords. There's these bamboo swords. I think it's Kempo, where there are a bunch of pieces of bamboo, strips of bamboo that are tied together. And it would hurt like fuck to get hit with them. Yeah. Because it's got not a lot of wind resistance and a whole bunch of things hitting you at one time and it's bamboo so it's really a light you can get that shit going fast they'd tuck razor blades into their skirts or wrap them in bits of cloth so they could use them as like a blade whip one woman specifically who's the leader of a 50 woman gang she was called keiko the razor she'd keep a razor blade whip in her cleavage and she was known to slash you in the face if you were unlucky to get on the unlucky to get on her bad side I'm not sure how they really attached it, but that somehow they had these bits of cloth with just razor blades on them. Wow. Yeah, she was, uh, she was known for her violence. Like the Yakuza, Sukaban members adhered to a strict code of conduct that would result in corporal punishment or death if you walked outside of this strict, strict code of conduct. For instance... I love how organized crime gangs have like a code of conduct. I mean, it's just interesting. I mean, I guess you kind of have to have honor among thieves in a manner of speaking, you know, because you don't want your gang to be fighting amongst themselves. You want them to do be fighting amongst you know, the other gangs or the civilians or the police or whoever it is you're, you know, up against. So in the Sukaban, if you were to sleep with another member's boyfriend or like disrespect another member or something, you'd get a few cigarette burns. Not so bad. I mean, ow but not so bad. More serious infractions were allegedly dealt with by hanging the offender. Oh. So I imagine if you, like, you know, narc or you snitch or something, that's definitely something that's going to get your ass hanged. Um, you know, definitely betraying the fucking... The gang is not... Probably not just a cigarette-burnable offense. Their crimes ranged from little things like shoplifting, pickpocketing, that sort of thing, to less little things like breaking and entering and assault disturbing the peace sort of things because you're just on like these gang fights you're just like fighting in the fucking streets causing all kinds of havoc and blood the largest gang was called Kanto Women Delinquent Alliance who boasted around 20,000 members another Sukaban gang was called Tokyo's United Shoplifters Group who had about 80 members I'm sure all of these names sound way cooler in Japanese than they do their translated names. And probably not a direct translation. You know, the translation probably doesn't really carry as well. Well, it didn't take 
very long for Japanese culture to embrace these gangs as pop culture icons. So these gangs kind of started in the mid-60s, and by the 1970s, they had all of these, like, movies, like, expletive movies, like, exploitation movies. You know, it was basically the Japanese schoolgirl version of Shaft, Superfly, or Blackula. With, I mean, very similar things. I mean, those things were based off the, you know, drug dealers and pimps back in the 70s. And so these ones were based on the Sukaban gangs. So they were, you know, usually the plots like this girls and these girls are in school and they're in a gang and the, the school is like fucked up in some way. Like uh, one of them, it's their they go to a Catholic school and they punish them through sexual punishment. And so they have to fight against that. It's very like, it's really weird. Yeah, it's it's something else. It's cheesy sex-charged and violent as fuck. There's a series called Terrifying Girls High School. There's two movies of those, and that's the first one. There's, you know, an oppressive staff that are, you know, abusing the students. And then in the part two is when they go to the Catholic school where they're being sexually abused. There's all kinds of these movies. There are so many of these movies. When on IMDb, when you just look up Terrifying Girls High School, you go down to where it says more like this and you're just clicking and some of them have English on the titles. Some of them have no English on the titles, but it's all basically the same thing. You've got these girls dressed in their Sukaban outfit, looking menacing with, you know, various other things going on. Uh, they also are popular characters in, or I guess popular tropes in anime and manga. Video games too. Oh, I'm sure video games, yeah. You know, Olivia used to play some video game, which was like this like Japanese girl going around her, her school, like killing people. I can't remember the name of it, but yeah. It seems like <laughs> during that time, they were just, like, movie makers were just into realism, sort of, you know. There's this real thing. Let's exploit it heavily and you know really sexualize it a lot sexualize the shit out of it because i mean the sukaban in general were the the real ones weren't trying to they were they were very much against the sexualization that was one of the reasons for the long skirts right and especially of young girls because well that's creepy as fuck <laughs> yes so to to in turn sexualize them sort of you know I'm sure pissed them off, but they pretty much were died out and gone by the 1980s. Just no more Sukaban gangs. Uh, there was still Yakuza activity. Uh, nowadays, they do have, I can't remember what they're called, but they're like these all-female motorcycle clubs where they have these, you know, fast motorcycles that are like pink with all kinds of decals or stickers and shit on them. And these girls just ride around on them because the motorcycle clubs generally don't let girls in there and they're like well fuck that yeah we like motorcycles too we don't want to ride the back on the back of our douchebag boyfriend's motorcycle he can get on the back of mine fuck him so it in a way has carried on but i don't think they're quite as violent as uh they were back in the 60s and 70s and obviously nowadays they're probably not dressing so 
square, you know? Right. So covered up. Well, it's hard to ride motorcycles in long skirts, too. True. And probably dangerous. Yeah. And get caught in something. Yeah. Get something Pretty easily stuck under the, under the skirt. My mom was telling me a boyfriend she had in high school had a motorcycle, and she was on the back of that, and she had like a long-sleeved jacket on, and a bee hit up in the jacket, and fortunately it died and didn't sting her, but still, you know? Yeah. Imagine a bee in your skirt. That wouldn't be cool. That sounds pretty unpleasant. <laughs> yes, no one wants a bee in their skirt. No. Well, few people want bees in their skirts. All right. Well, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, I uh, didn't know anything about it, so it's. Uh, I thought I would. I would bring it to the audience. Do you want to hear my strange and disturbing story? This is a very strange and disturbing story. This is the story of Natalia Barnett. Michael and Christine Barnett had three sons, but they wanted to expand on their family through adoption. So in November of 2010, through an adoption agency, they were told there was a six-year-old little girl from the Ukraine available for adoption. The girl's name was Natalia, and she suffered from a rare type of dwarfism. So not only is it that she would have a short stature, uh, her she suffered from like hip dysplasia and limb malformation. They weren't just shortened, but um, there is a certain degree of deformity to her, not only just to her legs and arms, but also her spine. She had like scoliosis and they were led to believe that she could not even really walk on her own or unassisted. She had just been returned from a previous family for, at the time, undisclosed reasons. She had been in the United States since she was um, about five years old, since 2008. And November 2010 is when Michael and Christine met her and adopted her. They didn't have a lot of time to spend with her. Michael was told by the agency that they only had a 24-hour period in which to make their decision on whether or not to adopt her, and if that, you know, if they didn't make up their mind within that time, she was going to be placed into a foster care family. I wonder if that's like a common thing. Do they oftentimes only give you very short amount, short amounts of time? Uh, I don't know, and I don't know if they really questioned it, but it does seem a little sus to me. Yeah. Uh, especially like, if, you're, okay. if you're trying to do a permanent adoption. I mean, it's one thing if it's like foster care, and it's pretty quick because you've already agreed that that's you know usually meant to be like a temporary thing yeah so maybe not getting too much notice about a foster care placement i can see but if it's a permanent adoption like that's it seems kind of like you you can have this kid but you've got 24 hours to decide because otherwise i mean it seems like them this child going to a foster home wouldn't like throw a wrench in the whole adoption thing. It's like, that's cool. So this adoption, this, this foster home, and, you know, you can get to know the kid that way or whatever. Right. I mean, maybe they were in Florida. Maybe it was going to be in some other state. Yeah, I guess. Knows, yeah. Or yeah. somewhere far away. I mean, Florida is a pretty big state, so maybe it was going to be somewhere, you know, way far away. Like, they're in the panhandle and she's going to Miami. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. 
looking back on it, uh, another red flag was that when they met her, she seemed very happy and immediately started calling them mommy and daddy. But I guess maybe to the couple who were so eager to adopt, like, that endeared uh, them to her. He says, in retrospect, it's a little odd because if she's six years old at the time and the family she was living with had just given her back, essentially, like, it would be strange for her to just be so happy and instantly like, you're my new mommy and you're my new daddy, so... Yeah, usually that you'd expect that to have some sort of issues, you know, and you wouldn't be so quick to just trust, you know, some... Yeah. Yeah. Well, immediately they started noticing things were, were odd. Aside from her initial behavior towards them, she didn't seem to want to play with toys. She preferred to... Uh, it, she didn't really want to play with uh, other kids around her age. Uh, the Barnets had a in-home daycare that they ran. So there was a lot of kids in the house, aside from their three biological children. There was also several other children in the house at any given time. And she seemed to want to play with uh, older kids versus younger kids. It also became apparent that she could walk and run much better, although the dwarfism was real. That was a real condition she suffers from. Uh one day when they were at the beach and they wanted, they had just, you know, gotten all the kids unpacked from the car and she, the brothers, you know, ran ahead to jump into the water and she wanted to go in the water too and was losing patience with them. And they were just like, look, just give us a second. Like we're out of breath. We're tired. It's probably hot as fuck. And, you know, just give us a minute before we can like, you know, carry you down to the beach and get you all situated so that you can play in the water, too. And so she just stood up and ran straight to the water. And they were shocked because they didn't think that she was physically capable of doing that. Yeah, with her legs and her arm or her legs and her spine, I mean. Christine was also shocked to notice that uh, Natalia had pubic hair, which she noticed when the first from the first time she went to bathe her. Yeah, and that uh, she would find clothes uh, stuffed in the closet with blood on them, and it evidenced that she was having like a menstrual cycle, which isn't common for someone that young. No, six years old. No, very uncommon. Very uncommon. Another thing that was odd to them is that they had a friend who was Ukrainian and who spoke Ukrainian to Natalia, and Natalia couldn't understand what they were saying. Yeah, this that's, after uh... she's only been in the—I mean, that would have been her birth language, and she's only been in the U.S. a couple of years, so she should still know Ukrainian. Even though she, yeah. yeah, she should still know Ukrainian. So all these red flags were popping up as well as her behavior became increasingly weird and violent towards them. They started taking her to doctors because of the weird physical uh, discrepancies about her age. Uh, Christine said, quote, Natalia was a woman. She had periods. She had adult teeth. She never grew a single inch, which would happen 
even with a child with dwarfism. So they had her from 2010 to 2013, I believe. And during that time, she never grew at all, whereas if she was actually six years old, when they got her, she would have grown a little bit because children born with dwarfism, although they'd never reached, they don't end up ever being very tall, they do still grow. Right. They don't, they don't, yeah, I mean, they they start out as a baby Mm -hmm. and grow into their adult height. And that doesn't normally stop at six. No. (laughs) And then what the fuck is the deal with the adult teeth? And the, you know, the the Paul Malls she was smoking. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, six-year-olds don't generally have a mouthful of adult teeth either. No, they do not. As you recall, when we were with you, my 13-year-old lost a baby tooth. Yeah. And that's 13. And that was 13. That was just like a month ago. Yeah. A little bit over a month ago. She actually lost what we think is her last baby tooth like last night. She lost one more. And I don't know. I mean, I know it was a baby tooth because it doesn't have a root, obviously. And she's, <laughs> yeah. she's too young to be losing her adult teeth just yet. She wasn't in excruciating pain before right, that. Right, right, <laughs> exactly. But, I, I mean, I'm pretty sure that should be her last one, but... Who knows? But yeah, she's 13 and still is. I mean, kids are like six years old. I mean, they usually have like no front teeth. I mean, I look at pictures of my kids when they were that age and they're like got gaps all over the place because. Looks like a jack-o'-lantern. Yeah, they're very actively like losing teeth and having teeth, you know, their adult teeth grow in at that age. But apparently she never lost any teeth. She seemed to have a full set of adult teeth when she's allegedly six years old. Now, they took her in for some bone density scans, and that doctor alleged that she uh, she was much older, that uh, initially they were told the 14, but in 2012, they actually filed a petition to have her age corrected from her date of birth being in 2003 all the way back to 1989, putting her at 22 years old. What the fuck? Yes. So I wasn't, I wasn't far off with the Paul Malls. No. <laughs> no. Now, initially, I think they were told that she might be 14, but then they get her birth certificate altered to show that she's 22. And it's a little... This case is very, very confusing. There is a lot of court documents, and it's kind of confusing as to how they actually came up with that age i imagine it would be bone density her teeth um yeah one of the reasons they say they had her age corrected to 22 was so they could have her admitted to a psychiatric hospital which they did because her behavior was growing so uh erratic and violent she threatened to kill them all they would wake up in the middle of the night and i mean this is all alleged Natalia herself denies doing any of this. But the parents say that they would wake up in the middle of the night and she'd be standing over them holding a knife. And that on multiple occasions, she tried to poison Christine's coffee. Once with, like, pledge, like lemon pledge. And then another time she poured bleach into her coffee. And another time she put Windex in her coffee. Windex, I think, would just give you the runs. (laughs) <laughs> I think pine salt might kill you. I know I have, bleach will kill you dead. Yeah, bleach is, I mean, definitely. You don't want to be ingesting bleach. But that shit also is, 
very, I mean, you can tell, like, why does my coffee taste lemony? Right. Why does my coffee reek like bleach? It, uh, Christine also alleges that at one point she tried to push her into an electric fence. And Michael claimed that she would litter the stairs with thumbtacks in an attempt to injure them. Should never have shown her home alone. Right. Now, they have her admitted into the psychiatric hospital. And again, this is all allegedly, supposedly, this is stuff that's mentioned in the court in court documents, but I don't know how much of it is actually like 100% irrefutable. Right. Allegedly, she was diagnosed as being a psychopath in the mental hospital. She also allegedly, supposedly told some of the staff there that she uh, fantasized about killing the family. She wanted to, she had planned out how to kill the family, most especially Christine, because she wanted Michael to be her only caregiver. Wow. And then there's other allegations that she was promiscuous with other uh, patients in the hospital. And had admitted on multiple occasions to multiple people that she was much older than what was said in her original birth certificate, but she was afraid of being deported back to the Ukraine. And the answers kind of varied uh, every single time. Sometimes she said she was in her 20s. Sometimes she said she was closer to 30. It's not really known and then, of course, it's all kind of speculation, like, you know, it's he said, she said kind of thing going on as to what she actually admitted to and how many times she actually said that she was, in fact, a grown adult. <laughs> she has gone on Dr. Phil. Uh, that was back in that was in 2019 and denied all of that. So in 2019, she says she's actually 16 years old at the time. As opposed to actually being, like, 30 years old. Yeah. Well, she was discharged from the hospital in 2013. So at that time, the family just decided that they didn't want to deal with her anymore, and they were afraid of her. Also, their oldest son got into this really prestigious college in Canada. He is um, kind of a genius. He's on the autism spectrum. And, but is like really super, super freaky smart and got into this really prestigious college and they wanted to move there to kind of support him while he was in college and they did not want to bring Natalia with them. So <laughs> yeah. since they had gotten her official um, birth certificate changed to where she was now like 22 years old, they set her up with an apartment bought her some food, they paid her rent in advance for a year, and took off to Canada. Got the fuck out of Dodge. Yes. And they enrolled her in some sort of, like, adult school training program. I'm not quite sure the deets on that. But at some point, uh, this couple noticed her, and she told them that she was 22 and lived on their own. They're like, no fucking way. And she went over to their house and basically never left. They are now like her adopted caregivers and she has since changed her story and just said that, you know, she was coached by Christine to say that she was 22 years old 
But in reality, she was still just like eight years old when she was left to live alone. Right. Now, in 2019, Christine and Michael are charged with six felony counts of, like, child abandonment and neglect. And it's been this whole crazy uh, circus in the courts because no one can really figure out whether she's a kid or she's an adult. There's also an issue on the statute of limitations for some of the charges. And they've tried to go back and amend her birth certificate back to 2003. And the courts have, like, refused to do so. Also, the charges uh, were dismissed against them. But the state of Indiana, because that's where they set her up, uh, they, they went from Florida to Indiana and then the family went to Canada. So the state of Indiana keeps trying to take them back to court on these dismissed charges. They keep trying to appeal that decision that the judge made to dismiss the charges against them. Right. And they say they might take it all the way to the the Supreme Court. Like, the case is still ongoing. Wow. Natalia's new parents also sued to try and have her birth certificate changed back to 2003, but that was, uh, they didn't, weren't able to do that. So she has been on Dr. Phil. Uh, she made an appearance where she was pretty convincing, saying she didn't understand what was going on and that basically she feels like the she just became a financial burden upon the Burnets and that's why they wanted to get rid of her and they just concocted this crazy story and she didn't, you know, she never did anything to them. Yeah, but you'd think if, there was, if she was such a financial burden that, I mean, putting a year's month or a, a year's rent down on an apartment can't be cheap. I mean, I yeah. guess I don't know how much an apartment goes for in Indiana. Right. Probably not all that uh, expensive in Indiana. It's one of the cheaper places to live. Her new adopted parents, Antoine and Cynthia, they are pretty convinced that she is, in fact, uh, a child, or I guess now she would have just now turned 18, but at the time that she was a young teenager and that when she came in and moved in with them, that she was, you know, under 10 years old. She's been with them for several years now, and they say that they haven't had any incidents with her and that she's just, like, a normal kid and not a danger to anyone, so they just don't understand what the Barnets were were doing or or thinking. So people are pretty divided over this. So her adopted family is convinced that she's telling the truth. There was this woman who came from the Ukraine and a woman named Anna Gava, and she allegedly is Natalia's mother and confirms that her date of birth was September 4th of 2003 and that she gave her up for adoption the next day because she was a single mother in the Ukraine and couldn't, due to the deformities that she was born with, uh, she she knew she wasn't going to be able to take care of her, so she put her up for adoption the next day. And it alleges that DNA proved that Anna was, in fact, her mother. Huh. But that, again, has not actually surfaced in the actual court documents. The court documents don't say anything about a DNA test proving that. Because you would think if that were true and, uh, you know, that, that they would have included that to prove that the parents were indeed liable for neglect. Yeah. Because 
or at least like change your birth certificate back. But I mean, again, I don't think that it can actually prove her age. It just can only prove that this woman is actually her mother. If in fact there has been a definitive DNA test that does prove it again, this is just kind of hearsay. This, she's been on YouTube. She's been on a couple of news channels like, oh, yes, she's my daughter, you know, and a DNA proved it, test proved it. But no one's actually shown the DNA test. Yeah. And by the way, uh, apartment prices in Indianapolis, Indiana, for a one, two, three bedroom range between about 600 to right around $1,200 a month. Yeah. So it's quite a bit cheaper than where I am. <laughs> yes, that's for sure. Well, and I don't think, um, I mean, that's just, you go through a lot of money to do adoptions, too. Like, oh, that's yeah, an that's not process. cheap. So that's not something that you're going to do if you're you know, not financially able to. Right, so, right. And, and they knew ahead of time that she had a, a condition that would require probably several surgeries and... Uh, lots of special assistance, and they felt that they were able to take it on. It just seems odd that they would just... I mean, it seems like there could be so many other reasons that they could give for not only... Um, I mean, I don't know. It seems like you could do things other than try and, you know, get a doctor to sign off on the fact that she's actually an adult woman and get her... They got her set up with social services and disability so that she was getting some money as an adult and set her up in an apartment and everything, but they just didn't, you know, want her part of their lives. I think they, they tried to do like the right thing kind of, but if what they say is true <laughs> and this girl was in their room with a knife, like standing on their bed or whatever, or near their bed with a knife, that's, I would be scared too. Yeah. And if he, she went to a psychiatric hospital and shared all these fantasies of killing them and killing her exactly. family, I mean, I'd want to get the fuck out of her there, too. I I mean, it. that's why this case is just so weird, because it seems to be like a, a nice, normal couple who've raised like three, uh, you know, three good, upstanding children. They and, ran and a fucking daycare. They ran a fucking daycare. So it's a little crazy that they would adopt a six-year-old and then all of a sudden decide that she's actually an adult and she's also evil. Yeah. And just abandon her in an apartment. And she was on her own for over a year because they moved her into an apartment and then they were still in the state with limited contact with her for a year before they actually went to Canada and like left her completely on her own. So it seemed, I mean, one of the things that Dr. Phil was saying, although he seemed very sympathetic to Natalia, uh, was that it was odd to him that she would be able to just live, you know, if she's like eight years old at the time, eight or nine years old, like how was she able to just handle that? Yeah, right. I mean, for such a long time before she went to live with the mans, uh, Cynthia and Antoine Mans. Yeah, there's not a lot of, uh, like, children that... And how no one would have noticed that there was a child, a literal child, just living on their own in some apartments. I mean... Well, I think people did notice. That's how she kind of came to the attention of Cynthia Mans was... She she noticed her, and then some other person that lived in the apartment said, "Like, no, like she's actually twenty two And and Cynthia was like, "No fucking way!" Yeah, because she looked so young, right? But yeah, 
And then there's been so much back and forth, like some of the doctors that said, yeah, she, based on her teeth and her bone density, she's in her 20s or her 30s. And then other doctors have gone back and refuted, like, no, she really was like eight years old at the time that she was left. And and then there's this Anagava who claims that, you know, like this is her daughter and she was born in 2003, which would make her 18 now. And... uh 18 now and at the time in in 2013 like about 10 years old when they when the barnets went to canada yeah so and then now it's even uh it's even harder to to kind of figure out what's what like the barnets gave several interviews uh right when they first like got arrested and brought up on charges of neglect but uh in october 2019 a judge issued a gag order saying they could no longer speak about the case to anybody so (laughs) so now it's yeah it's still ongoing and still being appealed by the state wow it may go all the way to the supreme court crazy uh yeah pretty nuts and like i said nobody i mean it's pretty divided between people who think that you know, oh, this poor girl who was just, a, you know, abandoned by her family because they just didn't want to deal with her. And so they made up this crazy story about her, her being a grown up and nuts. And then the other people were just like, no, these people were like defrauded. Uh, you know, who knows what happened in the Ukraine with her before she even came here. And then it was later found out that that couple that had given her back that had, you know, decided it wasn't like a good fit. It was because she attacked one of their biological children and they said that she did so intentionally. And that would have been when she was allegedly six years old. But and that they had maybe found out that there's a possibility she was much older than what they thought. I I think she was with them for like a couple of years because she came in 2008 to the U.S. And then it was 2010 when the Barnets adopted her. So you could just give kids back like that. You have them for a couple of years. You're like, this doesn't work out. You guys, can you take it back? Yeah. I mean, sometimes, you know, they're on a, you know, the adoption is based on a, a trial placement. Ah, so I there's see. like a trial period, I think, sometimes before the adoption becomes finalized. I see. Yeah. It's all in all a very disturbing and weird story. I mean, imagine, yeah, I mean, imagine how scary that would be. I mean, imagine how disturbing and scary that would be, like, uh, if you really were convinced that she was indulged and she really was doing this behavior, like, trying to, like, poison Oh, both. I mean, both things are disturbing. Like, yeah. And then, okay. And then if she really was a child and they were just like, no, she's evil. Leave her. Yeah. 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 I mean, they're, they're both fucked up things. It's like either these people were being terrorized by someone posing as a child or they ditched a fucking child. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah. That'll be an inter- interesting one to see how it uh, how it pans out. Yeah. Because man, that is uh, wild. It's similar to a movie that came out in 2009 called Orphan where they adopt this little girl they think from Russia and it turns out she's like a full on fucking psycho adult. Yeah, I think I did see with a form that. of dwarfism. Yeah. Yeah, well that's a, I mean that's just a a scary a scary thing. I mean, yeah. children who can fuck you up is scary, mm-hmm. you know, and especially, even if they're not children. Right. If they're the adults posing as children, like how creepy is that? That's very creepy. Yeah. So 
That it, that is my creepy and, and disturbing story. Well, it was, uh, yeah, certainly certainly both of those. Well, uh, let's move on to Down Under. All right. We'll talk about a missing child in Australia. It's another one that sounds very much like a missing 411 case. Well, we did a whole Australia episode, didn't we? We did. And Way then last, back in the day. Yep. And then last episode, I talked about the, the whole family that was found dead in America. Yes. With the dog. Yes. Well, fortunately, this particular case does not include a dead family or a dead dog or a dead anything. Oh, well, good. I'm glad. A three-year-old nonverbal autistic child went missing in the putty region of New South Wales, Australia. This area is fairly remote. Google Maps shows it to be between two fairly large national forests, the Wellemi National Park and Yango National Park, just north of Blue Mountains National Park, which I believe we actually spoke about in the Australia Missing Persons episode. Which, and then that, the whole area is about 94 miles or 152 kilometers from Sydney, which is on the east coast of Australia. It was a Friday around 12.30 p.m. when the report came in that a boy was missing from his home. So the cops show up, they look in the immediate area, and they can't find shit. No, no nothing. So they organize a more extensive search effort. They get the local police, so they get more of their, their homies out there. The New South Wales Ambulance, which is medical first aid responders, you know, just if you call whatever their 911 is because someone's having a medical emergency in New South Wales, these are the people that show up. Okay. The state emergency service, who helps with national disasters or any other major emergencies, so I'm sure they're out there helping with the fires and when there's floods or earthquakes. I don't know if they have earthquakes in Australia, but floods and shit like that, these people are the ones that come out and help. I think they're similar to like FEMA in that way, where mm -hmm. they just come out and help when Disaster whatever is needed. Relief I mean, type stuff. Even if there was like a huge fucked up car accident or like a bridge falls or something, they would okay. probably also end up there. They also had the Rural Fire Service, which firefighters, Volunteer Rescue Association, which is an actual group that gets volunteers. And then in addition to those volunteers, they had just other volunteers from the community. There wasn't much community. It's a remote area, but there are other people around. And so they had, you know, the other people come help as well. It started out Friday around 12.30. On Monday at 11.30 a.m., the child, A.J. Elphalek, was spotted from the air, sitting near a river, drinking water. So the guy in the helicopter was able to direct people to this child who was stuck in the Australian bush for three fucking days. Now, as we've spoken about before, the Australian bush is some serious shit. Yeah. There are ravines. It can be hot. Uh, although I don't think it was really, this is the timing. This is a very recent case. This just happened uh, last month in August. Wait, no, it happened this month in September. And uh, so it's it's still, I think it's spring there right now or getting close to spring at least. So nevertheless, not great weather. I mean, so it's not hot. It's probably kind of cold. Dense woods, not a great thing. So they find the boy. And he was suffering from diaper rash. He had some ant bites. And he was a hungry little guy. So they took him to the hospital just 
for precautions, but he was in really good health, except for those things. It did look like he had fallen down, but he's mm-hmm. three, so I'm sure he probably yeah. falls down all the fucking time. But there was nothing serious. No one has any idea how the boy wandered off or how he got how far away he was. They didn't say how far away he was, but he was in the woods. And so, mm-hmm. I mean, he was a little ways away. Uh, they don't know if maybe someone grabbed him and threw him out into the woods or they they just really have no idea. And he's three years old. Yeah. Even if he wasn't nonverbal, he's three years old. Three-year-olds are notoriously bad storytellers. So I don't think that there would be really anything he'd have to say anyway. But, uh, you know? Crazy. Well, I'm glad he was found alive. Yo, seriously, that's... I mean, I don't have any children, but I can certainly imagine the terror of your child being gone. Like, suddenly... AJ's fucking gone, and especially after a whole weekend of him being gone, you're just like, fuck. Oh my god. Hundreds of people helping. But they found him. So that worked out. That worked out pretty well. A good good ending there. A good ending. A good ending. And uh, I think we will end this episode off with an article on uh from thenationalnews.com about a prehistoric whale. The article is called Egypt Names 43 Million Year Old Walking Whale After God of Death. Excavation and study of Biomycetus anubis marks the first fossil discovery in Egypt by an all-Arab team of paleontologists. Which also seems really strange that that's the first time that a fossil was discovered in Egypt by all Arabs. I guess... Traditionally speaking, there's been a lot of uh, non-Arabs living in Egypt doing all kinds of archaeology and paleontology. And uh, so, uh, you know, I guess it's not that shocking, but still. Egyptian researchers on Wednesday announced the discovery of a species of semi-aquatic whale with legs which lived 43 million years ago. Discovery was made by a team of paleontologists at Mansoura University, who spent more than a decade studying the fossils before publishing their findings in the Royal Society Journal. It has been named Phyomycetus anubis, after the ancient Egyptian god of death. I bet you I'm going to pronounce that differently every single time I say it. (laughs) The fossil was found by a team that included Dr. Hisham Salam, a professor of excavations at Mansoura University, and his graduate student, Abdullah Gohar. The excavation was overseen by Egypt's Environment Ministry. The excavation and subsequent study are particularly significant in Egypt as it marks the first paleontological discovery to be carried out by an all-Arab team. Phyomycetus anubis belongs to a group of prehistoric marine animals called protocytides. These are unique because they are both aquatic and terrestrial, marking the middle of an evolutionary shift that changed whales from deer-like herbivores to the aquatic behemoths we know today. This shift happened in the Eocene Epoch between 56 million and 33.9 million years ago. The fact that the legged whale was named after the god of death was also no coincidence. It stemmed from the research findings that point to the new species being equipped with a unique physiology that made it very adept at hunting and killing various kinds of prey. It was a successful active predator, Mr. Gohar, the study's lead author, told Live Science. 
I think it was the god of death for most animals that lived alongside it. The study concluded that the whale measured three meters in length, so that's, I think, around nine feet. Yeah, I think that's right, like a little bit over nine feet, and weighed about 600 kilograms, which is, I'm not sure what that is in pounds, but it's more, I believe, probably around 800 pounds. The whale's fossilized remains found in 2008 in Egypt's Fayoum province, southwest of Cairo, in a valley that had been dubbed Wadi al-Hitan, Valley of the Whales, because of the large number of marine animal fossils unearthed there. The site was also where another prehistoric species of whale, Rhaeonistes afer, was discovered. The majority of the fossils found in Wadi al-Hitan are from the Eocene period of prehistory. Mr. Gohar and colleagues analyzed the fossils in a lab of Hisham Salam, founder of the Mansoor University Vertebrae Paleontology Center, and the study's senior author. So that's pretty cool. It's a weird-looking critter. Uh, well, the artist renditions are weird. It's got... It doesn't really look very much like a whale. It looks more like a slim hippopotamus with a long toothed snout and uh, no ears and a longer, thicker tail. Yeah, I think I remember reading about the four-legged whale. Pretty fucking crazy shit. Pretty crazy shit. I mean, if you think whales are weird because, evolutionarily speaking, they started out in the water, came to land, there were these like little deer-like herbivores, <laughs> went back to the water, and started like, fucking killing. Fuck this. <laughs> yeah. Going back in the water. Everything left the water. Well, a lot of things left the water, yeah. so it was, there's more competition on land. So survival of the most adaptable, I go back so. to the fucking water. You can get bigger <laughs> in the water because you don't have to support all of your own weight. Yes. And, uh, man, there's a lot of food down there. And real quick, the uh, uh, sources for my... My strange story was bbc.com and purdueexponent.org and, of course, Dr. Phil. Of course. Old Doc Phil. Is he even actually a doctor? No, he's not actually oh. a doctor. So anyone can go by doctor. I guess so. That's cool. Only if, you're, uh, only if you have Oprah at your back. <laughs> Wasn't right. he from Oprah? Uh, I think Dr. Oz was Oprah. Oh, Dr. Oz was from Oprah. What was Dr. Dr. Phil Oz from? is an actual doctor. Dr. Oh. Phil is not. He, he's a real doctor. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's about all we have for you today. So I hope you enjoyed all of our stories. I enjoyed our stories. So did I. Joanna's was a bit a little, a little, a little creepy and weird. Yeah, a little scary. But that's how Joanna rolls, so it's fine. You can find us on any social media places that we are just by searching for Stranger Than or Stranger Than Podcast. You can check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash Stranger Than Podcast. Here you can donate us $1 for a crisp pie 5 if we ever see you. Please don't stalk us. $2 will get you ad-free regular episodes, and $5 will give you a bonus true crime episode in addition to your ad-free regular episodes. You can also check us out at ageofradio.org slash stranger than. There you can listen to all of our podcasts. And if you go just to ageofradio.org, you can find a shitload of other podcasts, all different genres, all different varieties. You can find 
goods for purchase, all kinds of fun stuff. And with that, we'll talk to you next time. And stay strange. Thank you.